0: Well, good morning. It's good to hear you. It's good to see you. Welcome to those of you who are here. And welcome to those of you who are there, wherever there may be. I know where here is. Welcome to those of you who are there. From the scriptures, we know that God has promised to be with us whether we are here or there. And so would you join with me in believing that God has something for each of us today? My name is Chad Myers. I am uh, our new adult discipleship director here at Mount Horeb and I have been on staff for a little over two to three weeks. I preached in the contemporary room last week and it is my first time to be with you in the traditional room and I'm very excited to be here. I have heard three people so so far say that I'm their new favorite staff member and I have a wife and four kids so you do the math. I look, uh, look forward to getting to know you uh, better and to interact with you more. Have you ever been so tired, so exhausted that you've just done something completely out of the ordinary that wasn't you? Listen to a few of these examples that, that, that people remember doing after they were less tired. One person says, I put the dustpan in the refrigerator and the milk on the floor near the broom. One person said, I was so tired That I was going through the drive-thru for coffee, and as I was ordering, I realized I was next to the trash can. One person said, many years ago, I had to do a presentation. When I got to the meeting and opened my briefcase, I realized I had been carrying a backgammon board all morning. (laughs) This is my favorite. One person said, "I, I, I once spent five minutes searching desperately for my cell phone, complaining the whole time about it being missing to my girlfriend, who I was talking to on my cell phone. This went on until she timidly asked, Are you using your cell phone right now? It was such an out-of-body experience, I just hung up the phone. (laughs) Have you ever been so exhausted or so fatigued that that's happened to you? Robert Louis Stevenson, the Scottish novelist and poet, probably most best known for Treasure Island, tells the story of a storm that caught a vessel off a rocky coast and threatened to drive it and its passengers to destruction. All the passengers were ordered to remain below deck and the storm raged on and the waves crashed and the wind howled. Can you imagine the fear, not knowing what was gonna happen, not being able to see anything, being trapped below deck? Can you imagine the stress? Can you imagine the fatigue that sets in? It wears you down. And friends, you and I know very, very well that we've been in a bit of a storm since March. And I'm worn down. And maybe you're worn down. And we experience what I call faith fatigue. And my question and concern and what I'm interested in getting at from the text this morning is how do we sustain joy when we have faith fatigue? How do you sustain joy when you have faith fatigue? And why is this so important? Because those examples and illustrations earlier were pretty low stakes. But what about when the stakes are higher? When we experience faith fatigue, maybe we say and do things to people that we really love that we normally wouldn't say or do. Maybe we're more susceptible to temptation when we experience faith fatigue. Maybe the first thing to go is our sense of joy in the presence of God. So how do we sustain joy when we're experiencing faith fatigue? Our passage for this morning is Psalm 126. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. If you would like to look along on a mobile device, that's fine. If not, we will have the, the passage on the screen for you to follow along with. It's Psalm 126. These are the Psalms of a sense. These are what the pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem. They would sing these. It would shape them into being the people they were supposed to be because they were on their way. And what we're going to see in this passage is three things that we need to have if we're going to sustain joy in the midst of faith fatigue. First, we have to remember joy. Second, we have to anticipate joy. And then third, we have to release joy. First, we have to remember joy. Look at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... We were like those who dreamed. It was too good to be true. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. He says, when the Lord restored the fortunes, we were like those who dreamed. Could, could this be true? Are we imagining things, or is this really happening And then our mouths were filled with laughter and joy. And you say, where are you getting joy from this passage? And why are we talking about sustaining joy? It's because five times in this passage, the Hebrew word for laughter and joy, and they're actually interchangeable, which I really, really love. Five times for laughter, joy, this Hebrew word is mentioned. And they said, our mouths were filled with laughter. We had songs of joy. It just overflowed because of what God had done on our behalf. So much so that as we laughed and sang these songs, all the surrounding nations took watch. And they said, God's done great things. Who is this God? And then they repeated and they said, he has done great things for us. The Lord has done great things and we are filled with joy. And what I'm interested in is the context of this passage, because if you notice, it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes. Well, when is the when? When is the when? And most scholars believe that this was a psalm that was written as and after the people of God were coming back from exile into the land. And so this is a post-exilic psalm, so to speak. And so you remember that because of the people of God's unfaithfulness, they forfeited the right to have that privilege and maintain their distinctiveness and have that joy. And so um, God raised up the Babylonians and they went into the Babylonian captivity about 586. And then God raised up Persia. And Persia conquered the Babylonians. And you remember Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus, king of Persia, said the people can go back to their land. This is about 70 years later. Because remember in uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah wrote a love letter to the exiles while they were there to encourage them and to sustain them. And he told them, 70 years you'll be in exile. But don't forget, after 70 years, God will bring you back to the land and establish you as his people. And so Cyrus... Sends them back, starts to send them back. And this is the psalm that they wrote. When the Lord restored our fortunes, could this be happening? 70 years of exile, and now we get to go back into the land. And they're remembering their joy. They're remembering their joy. And friends, if you're anything like me, we forget. We just forget. It's okay, it's nothing to beat ourselves up about, but we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of the acts of God on our behalf. In fact, when the Bible speaks of how we are shaped into being faithful people of God, one of the core components is that we rehearse God's past faithfulness. We remind ourselves, this is what he's done, he's faithful. This is what he's done, he's faithful. This is what he's done, he's faithful. And we root our joy in those places. If we could, I'd like to do a little bit of a call and response with you. Um, I would like to, I have the, I have the hard part. You get to say the same thing each time. So I have something I'm going to read and all I'm going to ask you to do, we, we sang this earlier that he has done great things. And all I'm going to ask you to do is just to say that out loud. He has done great things. And I just want to remind us of a few passages of scripture of what Christ has done on our behalf. I can tell you're with me. I see it in your eyes. That's all I have to go on, but I can tell you're with me. All right. So here we go. After I read, you will say he has done great things. He has rescued us from the dominion of sin. He has made us alive together in Christ. He has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. We have no condemnation in Christ. He has set his love in our hearts. He has done great things, and we bless his name as we remember those great things he's done on our behalf. But, friends, it's not only salvation, it's not only the death and resurrection of the eternal Son of God that we get to share in. It's we get to share in these everyday, overwhelming experiences that God gives us. It's what theologians call common grace. I woke up this morning about 530 and I made coffee because who can wake up at 530 without coffee? Never met that person. And I made some hot coffee and I sat out on the front porch. And you may think, what, did, what were you doing up at five 30? Well, I was praying for you, friends. But seriously, I was praying for you. And I was out there and it was pitch black and there was one lone star off in the distance. And I was silent and I was in prayer and I was meditating and the sun started to come up and I was just struck with the beauty of that moment and the beauty of creation and the beauty of a hot cup of coffee on the porch, seeing the wonder of God in creation. Friends, we sang, it a, we sang about it earlier. We sang about it. For the beauty of the hour, of the day and of the night, hill and vale, and tree and flower, sun and moon and stars of light and hot coffee and cold water and beach sunrises and sunsets and friends and laughter and family and words of encouragement and brilliant music that we get to hear. God is a prodigal God. He doesn't withhold his gifts from us. He's not stingy. He's benevolent and he's overwhelmingly happy to continue to give and to give and to give that we may just say, oh my God, it's so much. It's so much. Every day, you lavish upon us these gifts of graces. And we remember. But when we get fatigued, it's easy to miss that. You know why? Because we miss joy when we only pursue the extraordinary instead of the ordinary. And if there's anything I've learned in my life of faith... It's that the older we get and the more seasoned we get, we learn that we have to look for God in the everyday, ordinary happenstances. That's where he hides and he plays and he's always willing to be found in those places. Amen? And God's past faithfulness, it's his faithfulness in the past that moves our future faithfulness. And so we remember joy. But not only that, we anticipate joy. We look backward and we rehearse those acts, but we also look forward with eyes of faith and anticipation and say, what is God going to do? He's done great things, but the last I checked, he's still alive and on the move. So what's he going to do? And we anticipate joy. Look at verse four. It says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, if you read verse one carefully, you're asking yourself right now, it seems to be a subtle tense change in the verb. It was past tense when the Lord restored our fortunes and now it's changed. It's moved to present tense. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. So we've moved on from a sense of we look back, but there's something else going on. What is going on? Why did the tone shift all of a sudden in verse 4? Restore our for- fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Here's why. Look at Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. It goes on to say that he makes a decree to send the people of God back to the land, as I've already discussed. Now... Most scholars think that that could have started or could have made this decree anywhere around 536 and it took some time to be enacted. But here's the thing, and here's why it shifts to present tense. Because not all of the people of God returned to the land at once. Only a few did. And in fact from scriptures and from history we know that it took about a century for the people of God to leave exile and to get back into the land as they were established to be. Not everybody came. And maybe you can imagine why. 70 years. They had businesses. They made business arrangements. They had economy and commerce. They had children and they had grandchildren. But the challenge is this, they became too comfortable during exile, that when God promised that he would send them back into the land and he acted upon that promise through Cyrus, king of Persia, that they had grown too comfortable in exile and they didn't go back and they didn't return to the land. It's interesting if you look up Cyrus um, and do a little bit of research on him, he is still remembered by the Jews to this day as a great king because uh, they found favor under his reign and he acknowledged God as creator of heaven and earth and even what the Babylonians had taken from their temple. They had destroyed the temple, but they had taken these precious items that the the Jewish people used for worship. King Cyrus gave them back and he said, go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall. This is where we get Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Like all of those are happening after Cyrus says, go back and rebuild and restore and renew and be again who God has called you to be. But many people became too comfortable in exile. I think it's possible for us to do that as well. How do you avoid getting too comfortable in exile? And you might say to me, well, um, times have changed. You know, Babylon doesn't rule over us and there's no Cyrus, there's no King of Persia and it's different for us and and it is different. But I would argue this, for every person born east of Eden who experiences sin and suffering and sorrow and loss and this deep, tension within that says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. You're living in exile. Life East of Eden is an exilic experience. And then as the redeemed community of faith, we're also to be different and distinct and maintain our uniqueness as we continue to hold out hope. So how do you avoid getting too comfortable during exile? First, you have to remember your missional identity, You have to remember your missional identity. There are two major mistakes that I see Christians make when we live in exile. And the first one is this. We look and act and think so much like the culture around us that we don't have anything unique to say. The other one is this. We withdraw so far away from the culture that we don't have anything attractive to say. And we've become irrelevant. And the call of the people of God is always to be in the land, living out our lives, living out what redeemed humanity looks like, living out in such a way that, 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 that you could put it on a billboard and that people drive by and they look at the church and they say, well, well that's the redeemed or new humanity. I think I want to be a part of a community like that. That's the missional Purpose and identity of God's people. Not withdrawing so far, but not over assimilating so far either. Saying, No, I'm here. We're with you. We share the same struggles. We share the same losses. But there's something countercultural about the way we love each other, about the way we sacrifice for you, about the way we reach out with grace and kindness, and about the way we treat people and talk to people that we may disagree with deeply. And people look at that and they say, I don't know what's going on over there, but I think I want to be a part of it. And so we remember our missional identity. Secondly, we move into the future with the hope of possibility. We move into the future with the hope of possibility. Anticipating joy means that we don't give in to instant gratification. It means that we have eyes of faith to say there is a satisfaction and a pleasure that is beyond just infant gratification. There is a joy that is more lasting and deeper and truer than just the fleeting pleasures of sin. Have you all seen those, those tormenting experiments that they do with kids where they give them like a marshmallow and they sit a marshmallow in front of them and they're like, hey, you can have a marshmallow and you can eat that right now. But if you wait for three minutes... I'll give you another marshmallow. Have you seen these? It's terrible. These poor kids and the kids just sitting there and then the person leaves the room and they got cameras on them and there's this marshmallow sitting right in front of her. Maybe it's an Oreo cookie, which is even worse and uh, sitting right in front of them. And the kid gets it. Like logically the kid gets it. They're like, if I just wait, I will actually have two and two is better than one. They know this, but the person leaves the room and three minutes becomes an eternity. And about 45 seconds in, it never fails. That kid just can't do it anymore. And they take that marshmallow and they shove it in their mouth and they eat it. And anticipating joy means that we train ourselves, so to speak, to, to think through and to stay faithful and to say, you know what? There's a greater joy. There's something more on the other side. And I'm holding out for that. I'm holding out. We're not giving in to the fleeting pleasures of sin, but we are moving into the future with the hope of possibility because God is not just a God of the past. He's a God of the present and of the future. Soren Kierkegaard. Try typing in that name to your Google bar. It took me a few minutes. Kierkegaard. He lived in Denmark from early to mid 1800s. Danish philosopher, theologian, probably most famous for his book, Fear and Trembling, also called the Father of... Uh, Existentialism, a lot of great thoughts from Soren Kierkegaard. He said this, if I were to wish for anything, I should not wish for wealth and power, but for the passionate sense of the potential for which I ever young and ardent sees the possible. Pleasure disappoints, possibility never. And what wine is so sparkling? What's so fragrant? What's so intoxicating as possibility? And I think he's right. And the people of God anticipate what God will do in the future, and that moves us forward to anticipate a greater joy. So we remember, we anticipate, and then finally we release joy. We can't keep it to ourselves. We release it. Look at verse five. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Jesus said some of the wisest words that you and I have ever heard when he said this. It's more happy to give than to receive. And I really believe this as when I was young, I didn't understand this. And as I get older and as you get more seasoned in life, you start to understand this is very, very true. It's more blessed. It's more joyful. You get more out of it when you give than to receive. And the people of God know that a joy shared is a joy doubled. And these people are singing. They are singing because not everybody's back yet. They are singing their exiles home they are prayerfully singing their exiles home because they know we can't really experience the fullness until all have come home. There are still some out there. Today is um, our youngest daughter. We have four children. Our youngest daughter, she's eight years old today. Her name is Isabella May Myers. Uh, She goes by Izzy. If she trusts you and she really likes you, you get to call her Fuzzy. So, challenge laid down for a few of you out there. And um, I asked Fuzzy uh, a few years ago, she's a great conversationalist and she is fire and spice and all things nice. And so, uh, I asked Fuzzy a few years ago, hey hey Fuzzy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said to me, "All right, dad, here's what I want to be when I grow up. I'm going to be an artist, I want to be a scientist, and I want to be a professional basketball player. And I said, all right, that's the whole kit and caboodle right there. That's all of it. Um, That's great. And so that that marinated for a while. And then about about a year ago, I said to her, hey, Fuzzy, do you still want to be those things when you grow up? And she said, Dad, I got one more. I want to be a preacher. She said, can I do all those things during the week and preach on the weekends? (laughs) I said, absolutely. You can do anything, girl. (laughs) And eight years ago today, I sat there and we welcomed our fourth child, Isabella May into this world. And you didn't have to tell me to call my friends and family. You didn't have to tell me to take pictures. You didn't have to tell me to weep tears of joy. You didn't have to tell me to post that stuff all over the internet. I knew in my heart of hearts that a joy shared is a joy doubled. And I said, I can't keep this to myself. Everybody gets to delight in my daughter like I delight in my daughter. Check her out. Look at this. Isn't this wonderful? And friends, we have been given a precious gift the message and the hope of the gospel of Jesus. And there are people who have yet to come home. There are people who have yet to hear it. There are people who have yet to be sung back here. There are exiles still out there. And we pray and we sing and we maintain our missional identity in a distinct sort of way that we hold out hope for all of them to come back and to come home and to know Jesus for the first time. John 12, 24 says this, Very truly I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If we want to harvest joy, we must first sow self-sacrifice. Let me say it another way. If we want to get to Resurrection Sunday, we first have to pass through Good Friday. That's always been the template for the redeemed community. Death unto life. Death unto life. Sowing sacrifice unto joy. That's what God invites us to. And I really do believe this. And whatever fatigue that you and I might be experiencing... God can sustain us. God can sustain us. We can remember joy and we can remind ourselves. And maybe that's getting up and journaling or getting in the scripture and just going back over. I'm just gonna remind myself what God has done. Maybe that's taking note of all the common graces that he has given to us and just expressing gratitude. But then we anticipate joy. We look forward because God has moved in the past and he will move in the future. And we become a people who releases joy and say, you know what? We've experienced this overwhelming life change and transformation and the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. We get to share that. What a privilege. What a privilege. Robert Louis Stevenson closes that story out like this. He says, in the midst of the terror, in the midst of the fatigue, in the midst of the stress, one man contrary to order slowly made his way toward the pilot house and he saw the steerman at his post holding the wheel unwaveringly and inch by inch turning the ship back to sea. The pilot looked up at the passenger and he smiled. Then the passenger went below and gave out a note of cheer. I've seen the face of the pilot and he smiled all as well. Friends, we have seen the face of the resurrected King and he has smiled all is well. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you're a joyful God. We're grateful that you promise us that you work all things for good, even our brokenness and even our shortcomings. And Father, for some of us, we may be more fatigued and more tired than others. Would you strengthen us? Would you refresh us? For those of us who are not and those of us who may feel very strong today, would you help us refresh others? Would, would it be a released sort of joy that we serve others with? Father, help us be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And we thank you for that grace that you give us. It's in his name and for his glory that we pray, amen.